You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. If you have a Bible with you, if you will make your way to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. We're continuing on in our Advent series, Christmas Year-Round, Cultivating Christ-like Virtues. And today we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to be reflecting on verses 1 through 9. And I want to begin by reading this passage in church. This is God's holy inspired, and authoritative word. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, So he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that by his poverty you might become rich. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your help now. Your word is sufficient and it is powerful. It is inspired and perfect. But Lord, we need your help to receive it as we ought. So Spirit of God, come now and illuminate the word to our minds and to our hearts so that we will be transformed by what we hear. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. And Spirit of God, magnify Jesus in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In his classic book, Knowing God, the late theologian J.I. Packer has a wonderful chapter on the incarnation. It is, it is my habit every year to read that chapter. And in that chapter, there are two paragraphs. I, I want to I begin our sermon 
drawing your attention to because I think they are a perfect place to begin this message this morning. This is, this is what he writes. I quote, The Christmas message is that there is hope for ruined humanity. Hope of pardon. Hope of peace with God. Hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 33 years later he might hang on a cross. It is the most wonderful message that the world has ever heard or will hear. And then he says this. We talk glibly of the Christmas spirit, rarely meaning more by this than sentimental jollity on a family basis. But what we've said makes it clear that the phrase should in fact carry a tremendous weight of meaning. It ought to mean the reproducing in human lives of the attitude of him who for our sakes became poor at the first Christmas. And the Christmas spirit itself ought to be the mark of every Christian all the year round. That last line from J.I. Packer was the inspiration for this Advent series. The spirit of Christmas, when we understand why Christ came and how Christ came, that, that should affect us, not just in the month of December. The spirit of Christmas should mark every Christian all year round. That's why for this Advent series, we've been reflecting on certain virtues that every Christian should cultivate and virtues we should cultivate in light of Christ's coming. So far, we've reflected on virtues such as gratitude, humility, and servanthood. And this morning, we're going to reflect on another virtue, the virtue of generosity. The kind of generosity every Christian should exhibit. Now, let me just state at the outset, the kind of generosity we're reflecting on this morning and the kind of generosity we're seeking to cultivate, it's more than just a spirit of charity. The kind of generosity we're going to be reflecting on this morning and seeking to cultivate is more than just philanthropy. It's more than just acts of love towards our neighbor. Hey, it's good to give to the red kettle. It's good to give to the food pantry. This is more than that. This is something different than that. The kind of generosity we're talking about this morning that every follower of Christ must excel in, must be motivated by the gospel, and it must promote the cause of Christ in this world. We're talking about a particular kind of generosity that we are called to in light of the incarnation. We are to be motivated by the gospel, and we are to promote the cause of Christ in this world through our giving. Now, in an attempt to serve you as you listen this morning and reflect on this truth, I've divided up this text into, or this sermon into two headings. So here's our outline this morning. Point number one, the gift of generosity, which is where we'll spend most of our time thinking about. And then we're going to end by thinking about the great exchange. The gift of generosity And then the great exchange. Let's let's begin by thinking about 
the gift of generosity. And look again with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Oh, church, here we find a passage of Scripture. Along chapter 8 and chapter 9 are passages of Scripture that instruct us on what gospel-motivated generosity truly looks like. More than giving us a definition, we have the best example of gospel generosity on display in this passage. And this passage instructs us in what gospel generosity looks like, but this passage does more than that. This passage not only instructs us, it should inspire us to give generously for the cause of Christ. I love what one commentator, Dane Ortland, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians said as he summarized the point of chapter 8. This is what he wrote. This chapter is about divine grace and human giving. Let me say that again. This chapter, chapter 8, is about divine grace and human giving. He says, grace without giving is fraudulent and no real grace at all. And giving without grace is moralistic do-goodism. But when the grace of God in the gospel, outrageous and undeserved, in defiance of what we most deeply deserve, comes washing into our hearts, our clenched hands soften, and we are released into the joy of generosity. Oh, church, may that happen today, I pray. As we reflect on the grace of God that is outrageous and undeserved, it's in defiance of what we truly deserve. May, may that wash into our hearts softening our hands and releasing us into the joy of generosity. See, friends, when we view generosity through the lens of grace, which we are called to do, when we do this, when we view generosity through the lens of grace, that changes everything. See, when you and I believe that generosity is an act of grace, it's an act of grace, and when we believe it's an act of grace that benefits not just others, but it benefits us also, then and only then will we be motivated to give generously. That's what we see taking place here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is the exact point the Apostle Paul was seeking to make as he wrote this church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So it, it's important that before we go any further, that we make sure we understand this passage that we're reflecting on this morning within the broader context of this letter. So let me just take a moment to explain why Paul is writing what he is here in chapter 8 and in chapter 9 to this church. See, Paul had already in the past appealed to all the churches in which he had oversight of. And as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he had oversight over many churches, and he had asked them previously if they would contribute to a specific offering to meet the needs of the church in Jerusalem. 
Because at that time, the church in Jerusalem was experiencing significant hardships. And the Apostle Paul asked all the churches that he had either planted or had some relationship with, whether by a delegate or by way of letter, he said, I want us to help the church at Jerusalem, not only because it will meet their practical needs, but because it will speak volumes to them that they are not alone. So let's give. And in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 3, which I'm not going to take time to read, but if you want to go back and read, Paul in that letter had already told them, I would love for you to give to this church in Jerusalem. So here's what I want you to do. Every Sunday when you come together, I want you to take an offering so that eventually what you, you take up, you can send to the church in Jerusalem. Well, it appears from this letter here in 2 Corinthians that something has happened. Though they said they were going to do that, and though at some point maybe they were doing that, Paul feels the need to give two whole chapters to appeal to them once again. So what happened between 1 Corinthians, him asking them to do that, and now this letter, 2 Corinthians? Well, here's what occurred. Even though it appears this congregation had previously committed to giving to this offering because of a number of messy situations in the life of this congregation in Corinth, they had got sidetracked by their own problems. That's what's happening. If you know much about these two letters, First and Second Corinthians, and even in Second Corinthians uh, alone, you, you know that this is a church that has many strong suits and some glaring weaknesses, and they had to deal with some serious problems. And as they're dealing with their problems, they got sidetracked by their own in-house problems and lost sight of this offering. And Paul, here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, is inviting them again to be a part of this strategic opportunity to build up the larger body of Christ. That's what he's calling them to do. It's almost like they're a church, because of all their problems, they have just fixed their eyes on their problems, and Paul is saying, hey, listen, th this giving to the church in Jerusalem, it's going to do you good. It's going to lift your eyes off yourself, off your problem, off your church, so that you can be a part of something bigger and greater than just you. And the way in which Paul motivates this church in Corinth, here in chapter 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, to give generously, the way he calls them to do it, it this is instructive and inspiring. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Think about what Paul's doing here. He begins by saying, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So before Paul asks anything of this church in Corinth, he begins in a very winsome and careful way to put before them another congregation or another set of congregations here in a region called Macedonia. And he, he highlights these churches, churches like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, churches who were 
a part of, of, of the larger body of Christ. And from what we find out, they were eager. They were eager to be a part of this gospel partnership. And Paul puts them out and says, brothers, before I ask you to do something, let them inspire you. That's why he's, he's, he's sharing with them this example let, let them inspire you. He's not trying to shame them. He's not trying to manipulate them. He's trying to inspire them. Here is an example of a church that in many ways you should be able to relate to. They had their own problems, and yet look what they did. See, this church wanted to give, even though, notice this, even though they themselves were experiencing hardships. Even though this was a church in need of care themselves, they wanted to be a part of what God was doing. And in order to motivate this troubled church in Corinth to, to, to participate in this offering, Paul points to these churches who exemplify true generosity. And the first thing we must take note of in the first five verses, which talk about these churches in Macedonia, the first thing we must take note of is the reason why they gave. Before we, we look at how they gave, we, we've got to look at why they gave. And here's what's apparent and clear because of verse 1. They gave as an expression of God's grace at work in them. Look again at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. See, if you're wondering, when you read this passage, how could these impoverished churches in Macedonia, don't miss that, did you hear? They're, ex they're experiencing extreme poverty, we're told which should leave you scratching your head. How could these churches in Macedonia, who probably could use an offering themselves, how could they be experiencing extreme poverty, and yet, how could they give so generously? What was going on here? And Paul says, it was grace. Grace was at work. Now, Paul uses the word grace here in this passage a number of different ways. And in this particular context, he's, he's, he's speaking of grace as not just leading to pardon. That's how we often speak of grace. God's grace leads to pardon. No, this is a grace that leads to power. This is a grace associated with power. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, the apostle says this about himself. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, being the other apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Did you hear the way Paul uses grace there? It's not just, grace is not just something that brings us pardon. Grace is also something that is associated with God's power. 
And that's exactly how, how Paul speaks of grace later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Do you remember after Paul has this thorn in his, fl- in his flesh, he appeals to God to remove it, and the Lord Jesus tells him this. After telling him, I'm not going to remove this, this thorn, he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Did you hear that? It almost sounds like grace and power are synonymous in this passage. So grace isn't just something that pardons us. Grace empowers us. See, the kind of grace that Paul is speaking of here in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, it it, it comes with power. The kind of power that enables people to give so sacrificially. And look how sacrificially this church gave that just testifies to the power that God at work in them. For they gave, verse 3, according to their means and beyond their means. They gave according to their means and beyond their means. Now that word means here, we must understand how Paul is using it. He's using it the, the, the word actually in Greek means power or ability. So this is a church that is giving beyond their natural ability or power. That's what he means by means. He's not saying they're giving beyond their means, as in a sense to use a modern day expression. They wrote Paul a hot check hoping that by the time he got to Jerusalem there was money in the account. That's not what he means by they were giving beyond their means, that they were giving money that they didn't have. What it was saying, what it was saying was something miraculous is taking place. God was enabling these churches to do something bigger than themselves and beyond their ability to make happen. That's what's happening here in Macedonia. Here is a church in which Paul had no plan of telling them, hey, would you guys give to the church in Jerusalem? And they hear about it. And they not only want to give, they give in unexpected ways. It's almost as when they arrive and they give Paul their offering. It's almost like Paul goes, are you guys serious from you guys? (laughs) Unbelievable. (laughs) Unbelievable that you guys would do that. See, they gave in a way that was bigger than themselves and beyond their ability to make happen. Now can you see why they desired to be a part of this offering? They were saying to Paul, Paul, count us in. Count us in. We we don't want to miss out on such a wonderful opportunity. Something unique is happening. This offering is meaningful. It's strategic. And though we are currently in a place that is hard for us to give. We don't want to miss out. Count us in. Look at verses 4 and 5. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They say to Paul, Paul, you're going to let us do this, right? Please, Don't look at our our troubled place and our financial hardship and think, you know what, I'm I'm not going to bother you guys with it. There's other churches that can help. No, Paul, don't rob us of that. We want to be a part. 
We don't know how God's going to provide, and we don't know what that's going to look like, but count us in. And why did they do this? Because of verse 5. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. They said, Lord, we, we are submitted to you, and we want to be a part of something bigger. Help us. Help us to do this. And Paul uses this church in Macedonia as an example, urging these Christians in Corinth to be generous so that they too, listen, so that they too would not miss out on this experience of grace. In the same way that the church in Macedonia said, oh, Paul, we don't want to miss out. Just because you find us in a time of hardship and we don't want to miss out. Paul's saying, church in Corinth, don't you want to be in the same place? Don't you want to be in the same place? You don't want to miss out. Let, let the church in, in Macedonia inspire you. They saw something bigger and greater, and they didn't allow their hardships and their troubles to, to make them just become myopic and look at their own problems. They looked up, they saw something greater, and they said, we don't know how God's going to do it, but we're going to trust Him. We're going to submit ourselves to God, and, and we're going to see what He does. And it appeared that God uses this church so much so that Paul says to, to the church in Corinth, look at them, let them inspire you. And now he turns his attention to this church in Corinth in verses 6 and 7. He said, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, meaning as he started taking this offering, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you. See that you excel in this act of grace also. Notice how Paul refers to this opportunity to give generously as an act of grace. Two times he calls it an act of grace when he finally uses the Macedonian example and then he turns to appeal to the Corinthians to give. He calls it an act of grace. And not only does he say it two times, it's the bookends. He says in verse 6 at the beginning, and the last thing he says in verse 7 is he appeals to them, this is an act of grace. Now by doing this, by calling it as an act of grace, it's clear that this church in Corinth, like the church in Macedonia, they're, they're not obligated to give the, to this offering. Paul is not commanding every church to do this. They were simply being given the opportunity to show grace by a way of gift to those in Jerusalem. And they, like those in Macedonia, they, they were being called to overflow in generosity like they did with other gifts of grace. That's what Paul tells them in verse 7. I want you to excel in this grace also. First of all, assuming, not, not assuming, clearly this is a church, though it has many problems and troubles, there are things they are strong at. You excel in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness. He's saying, make this one more thing that you, you as a church want to overflow in. You're great in rhetoric and speech. When, when, when you come into your church, there, there is no lack of faith. You believe in miracles. You believe in these things. There's a lot of knowledge and a lot of teaching. Make this one of those things you're just as known for. 
And the word excel here is the same word we find in verse 2 to overflow. He's basically saying overflow in this act of grace just like you overflow in other expressions of grace as a church. See, Paul was exhorting these believers to participate in this particular offering because it would be a privilege for them and it would cause them to grow. That's why Paul's appealing to them. It's not simply because he is eager to to meet the needs of the church in Jerusalem, which he is. He wants something for them. As I studied this passage and reflected on this passage this week, there was something that just really struck me as I spent time thinking about it and reflecting on it. For me personally, the most surprising aspect of gospel-motivated generosity is this. Expressions of generosity are meant to bless me as much as they do those who receive the generosity. As I read this passage, I was just struck by that. That God designed generosity in such a way that gospel-motivated generosity is just as much meant to bless me and be a gift to me as much as it is to the person receiving it. Why do I say that? We'll skip ahead to chapter 9, verses 6 through 12. Paul's still talking about this offering to the church in Jerusalem, appealing to them, and this is what he writes. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly, are under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He, being God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Did you get what the Apostle Paul is telling this church? He's reminding this church, when you give generously, motivated by grace for the cause of Christ, God this is, this is scripture. I know there's many ways this can be abused, but let's not be so concerned with the abuses like the health, wealth, gospel that we miss the clear commands of scripture. When we give generously, God gives us more so that we can give more generously. And guess who gets all the glory? He does. Who doesn't want to be a part of that? 
Who doesn't want to see God do that? I'm going to throw out my little bit of seed for the sake of others and watch God give me a little bit more seed for the sake of others. And then all of a sudden I stick my hand in my basket and there's far more seed so that I can keep sowing. And guess what? No one says, you are just the, the, the most generous person. No, God gets all the praise. And God gets all the glory. I love what a fellow Sovereign Grace pastor, Jared Mellinger, said about why God wants us to be generous. Now, I think his words capture a, neglect, a neglected aspect of grace-motivated generosity. Here's what he said. God doesn't desire for us to give generously because he wants something from us. God desires for us to give generously because he wants something for us. Let that land on you. God doesn't want us to give generously because He wants something from us. No, He wants us to give generously because He wants something for us. See, the Lord knows what takes place when we give generously. And the Lord knows what happens when people who have very little give generously anyways as out of an expression of faith and worship. Something happens to us, does it not? Something happens to us. What is this that happens? We receive tremendous spiritual blessing. It's what Jesus meant when Paul quotes him in Acts 20, 35. You're, you've heard this probably many times. But I want you to take it to heart and ask yourself, do I really believe this? The Apostle Paul talked about how hard he worked among the churches and he says, here's why I did it. Because this was the Savior who said, it's more blessed to give than receive. Now, I doubt anybody would hear that and say, no, that's not true. But functionally, do we believe that? It's more blessed to give than receive. It does something for us and does something in us. And that's why I want every person here to believe that generosity is a great gift from God to you and will increase your joy in God. Did you hear that? Generosity is a great gift from God to you and me. It's not just that generosity is a great gift to others. Generosity is a great gift from God to us. It increases our joy in God. And get this, when you and I give generously, here's what happens. It will cause us to care more about Christ's kingdom and less about our own needs. That's what happens. The more we give for the cause of Christ, the more the, the, the love of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, the, the, the promises of Christ, it means something to us. Here's my encouragement to you. Make, make it your aim to excel in generosity. We're going to cultivate this passage, not just read it, talk about it, but actually cultivate it, excel 
in generosity. And here's why. Not because you have wealth, but because you've received much grace. And because you want to receive more grace from the Lord in order to abound in every good work for the sake of His kingdom. If generosity is something you're struggling with, I want to encourage you to excel in generosity, not because of how much money you have or don't have, but because you want to receive more grace from God in order to abound in every good work for the cause of Christ. Now, there is many practical questions that get raised that I wish I had time to answer them all this morning. I just want to say two things, then we're going to move quickly to the great exchange. But let me just say, we're making our way through the Gospel of Luke, and when we come to chapter 12 through a significant portion of the rest of Luke's Gospel, we are going to hear Jesus say more about money than he talks about in almost any other topic. So I don't feel today I have to exhaust everything. We're not talking about the opposite of generosity greed. Jesus is going to address that. There's going to be many more things we can talk about. What, what does this look like? How does this work in the days ahead? So that's the first thing. The Gospel of Luke is going to anchor us. Here's the second thing. Providentially, just a few weeks ago, our family of church, family of churches, Sovereign Grace Churches, they, they tasked four men to write something that we could give to all of our churches about what the Bible says about giving. We often get questions. And these men wrote just a helpful little booklet called Joyful Generosity that just answers some very um, practical questions and just questions that help us think about how does the Bible talk about this. And today when you leave out on the welcome table, we want to give one per family starting with members' families, because we want to make sure we have enough. So if you are a guest with us today, or you haven't been coming here long, could you hold up and make sure that every household gets one? And we're, we're going to ask you, would you be willing in the month of January to, to read through this and to pray about it and to think about it and make sure that you, just, you have convictions about this? And, and I know many of you do. I just want to thank you for the way that you give generously in, in so many contexts, in so many ways. You are a generous church. But we want to have our, our practice of generosity be shaped by Scripture. And this is just one way we can seek to do that. Now, if you're a guest with us this morning, I, I hope you hear this. At times, we have to talk about, about money and giving and we can't neglect that topic because it's something the Bible talks about. But we're always worried that people will hear, okay, I finally come to church and they talk about money. If you're a guest, I want you to know we're not asking for your money. Here's what we want for you today. We want you to receive, not give us anything in return. I hope you receive richly. I hope you have received since the time you walked in until the time you leave. So if you're a guest, just feel, feel freedom to not feel any. We're not, not going to send out a, a basket and pass it down the, down the aisles whenever I'm done this morning, okay? But this is a topic that we must talk about, and it's an important topic that has much to do with discipleship. That's why Jesus spoke about it so much. It's one thing to say, I care about your kingdom. 
Show me your pocketbook. Show me your prayer life. (laughs) Show me a lot of those things. It's easy to say, but discipleship gets lived out in areas like our finances. Now at this point, you may be thinking, okay, Josh, how does this particular virtue connect with Christmas and the birth of Christ? And that brings us to our second point, the great exchange. And I'm going to be quick here, but uh, we cannot miss this. The great exchange, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Much to say here, but I just want to draw your attention to how verse 8 begins and verse 9 begins and put them together. Verse 8, Paul says, what I'm saying to you is not a command. And then we see verse 9 begins with 4. So here's the reason why I'm saying what I'm saying, and yet it's not a command, but I'm encouraging you to do it. Here's why. Here's why I'm asking you to do this, because your giving is meant to be an expression of grace like that of Jesus Christ. This is not something you're obligated to do. This is something I desire for you to do because of Jesus Christ. See, friends, when we reflect on the incarnation and the crucifixion of Jesus, it should motivate us to give generously as Christ did. That's the whole point of Paul's exhortation. It leads to verse 9 in this great exchange. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. Stop right there. You know what's being talked about there? What Jesus was like before the incarnation. You see how this connects with Christmas? Before the incarnation, Jesus was rich in heaven. No need, no want, no weakness, no suffering, no trouble, no sorrow. He was rich, rich in all things. And yet, for your sake, he became poor. That's the incarnation. He who before time had everything, needed nothing, became poor. Why? So that you by his poverty might become rich. He who had everything took on flesh, came in the form of a servant, emptied himself, as Philippians 2 said, so that we would benefit. What does this mean that we we would be rich? Ah, well, notice, notice, don't, don't miss this. Notice the great exchange being spoken of here. He gave of his riches, took on our poverty so that we could become 
rich. This isn't the first place in this letter that Paul has mentioned a great exchange. Because in chapter 5, verse 21, Paul speaks of the greatest exchange. Listen to these words. For our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you hear the great exchange? That's, that's the ultimate exchange. Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, was treated as a sinner so that we who are sinners would be credited His righteousness. That's the great exchange. And brothers and sisters, this is the message of the gospel and the reason for Christmas. By him becoming poor, doesn't just mean that he took on flesh. By becoming poor, he received the just punishment of God, not just for you and for me, but for everyone that he bought with his blood. All the wrath fell on him. And you know what we get in return? We get treated before God as if we had the righteousness of Jesus. See, Jesus accomplished the great exchange for us, and he did so all because of grace. And friends, anyone who receives this gift of grace freely given by God is rich in God. Can you get any richer than that? We are treated as if we had the righteousness of Christ. So friends, no matter whether our bank account is puny or pathetic, whether we have very little earthly wealth, all those who belong to Jesus are spiritually rich both now and forever. And here's why. Because the maker of all things has made us his beloved children by the finished work of Jesus so that you and I can have an infinite and immeasurable inheritance in Jesus Christ. That's what we have. We are rich in God. Therefore, we should not give generously because of what we have. We should give generously because of who we belong to. We belong to the one who shows us what ultimate generosity looks like. That's why we give. We give generously, not because of what we have, but because who we belong to. Church, in closing, let's put these last three weeks all together. We spent two weeks in Philippians 2, and we saw that Jesus humbled himself, and he took on the form of a servant. Why did he do that? Because he is generous and rich in grace. Do you see the flow of these messages? Why we began with Jesus and his humility, Jesus and his servanthood, 
And now in generosity, why did Jesus do all of those things? Because He is rich in grace. And church, it's only when we understand the heart of God, which is on display in the gospel of Jesus, will we understand what true generosity looks like. Commenting on this verse in 2 Corinthians 8 9, J.I. Packer says this, and this is where I close. Began with this Packer quote, want to end with one. He said this, In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he says, Here is stated not the effect of the incarnation only, but also its meaning. The taking of manhood by the Son is set before us in a way that shows us how we should ever view it. Not simply as a marvel of nature, but rather as a wonder of grace. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, It's not just a marvel of nature that God who spoke the world into existence would take on human form. It is far greater than a marvel of nature. It's a wonder of grace. So let that truth, as we reflect on the incarnation this week leading up to next week, may it it do things to our hearts. May it remind us of the generosity of our God. And may we be motivated to give of ourselves and our lives and our energy and our resources for the cause of Christ. Let's pray. Father, the incarnation is a wonder of grace. A wonder, Lord, we can't even begin to understand. What we do understand, Lord, is amazing to us and moves us, but we we can't even begin to get our mind around what it means that you became poor for our sake, took on our humanity, lived in our place, obeyed in our place, died in our place. Oh, what great generosity. Oh, what great generosity we see in the person and work of Jesus. Lord, would you move all of our hearts this morning to behold Jesus in all of his glory and generosity. And Lord, may it impact how we live this week with open hands, open hearts, joyfully generous. We pray this in Jesus' name.